Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next edition of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. Again, I'm, I'm attorney Eric Daigle, and I'd like to welcome you all back. As you know, we start every podcast off with a quote. And the quote this time I had to look for a little bit on the behalf of our guest, retired Captain Greg Meyer from the LAPD. And I went back to Theodore Roosevelt in his time as the commissioner of the New York City Police Department. And he said fairly clearly, no man is above the law and no man is below the law. And obedience of the law is demanded, not asked as a favor. And that's kind of my opening to talk about a hot discussion topic. And before I do so, I want to take a second and introduce my guest, Greg Meyer. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be with you. Well, thank you. I've had the opportunity to know Greg for a while now from AELE, Americans for Effective Law Enforcement. A little bit about his background, and I'll let him expand upon it. He retired in 2006 as a captain with the Los Angeles Police Department. His final position and assignment was a captain of the Los Angeles Police Academy. His career has spanned 30 years, including eight years as a commanding officer. He does a tremendous amount of expert witness work, consulting work. Since 1989, he is engaged in the expertise of police tactics and procedures in numerous lethal and non-lethal police use of force litigation cases. And so I reached out to Greg because I was lucky enough to get an email from him about his recent testimony in the criminal litigation against the three officers in Minneapolis. And I was really intrigued by his response and his analysis in that first row, in that front row seat he had in the situation. So I'll start by saying, Greg, welcome. Uh, anything you'd like to add to your background and, and tell the leader and tell the uh, officers about your service? Sure. Well, I guess probably the best thing I can mention is that, uh, I found out at age 30, which is like 43 years ago, that use of force was going to be my life's work. I didn't know it at the time, but when I went into uh, off the street from South Los Angeles to uh, LAPD's planning and research division, they they picked me to be the non-lethal weapons uh, researcher for the LAPD. And we looked at a lot of different options, uh, and the taser was one of them, and the, the the old CS and CN sprays were among the ones that we adopted. But so I was known as the taser guy for a while because LAPD adopted taser in 1980, which is like 42 years ago. And, uh, I, you know, a lot of people, especially younger officers might think the, the tasers are relatively new equipment. And of course they, they keep changing the equipment, uh, and upgrading it. But uh, Taser's been around since the mid-70s, and LAPD adopted it in 1980, and uh, pretty soon, I guess, uh, more than 9 out of 10 agencies have adopted it over the years and in different generations of it. So I've been lucky to have a pretty big use of force background and doing a lot of, a lot of expert. I've been doing expert witness work since 1989, long before I retired uh, uh, as a captain at LAPD. And you've seen hundreds and hundreds of use of force incidents in which you've 
participated in reviewing expert and education, correct? Yes. Uh, the vast majority of the cases that I do are uh, police shootings, uh, taser cases, and uh, quite a few arrest-related deaths. And of course, George Floyd would be classified as an arrest-related death. What got my attention and grabs you to ask you to come on is you had the opportunity to be an expert and testify in the the federal civil rights verdicts against the officers, specifically the two rookie officers. One was your client in Minneapolis. Is that accurate? Well, halfway. I was, I was the expert witness for Officer Thomas Lane, who was the rookie officer that held down George Floyd's legs and did some other things we'll talk about. Um, I did not testify. I was scheduled to be the last witness in the case uh, to be right after Officer Lane himself testified. But the week before that, the attorney and I had a discussion and decided that uh, he was not going to put me on the stand because the prosecution's uh, witnesses had already given up all the good things I had to say about what Officer Lane had done out there to help Mr. Floyd's medical situation. And we, we can go into that in some detail, but let's understand uh, for those that didn't follow the Floyd trial, the federal trial closely, uh, that uh, Officer Lane was only charged with civil rights violation in the form of deliberate indifference to George Floyd's medical needs. He was not charged with failure to intervene, and we will get into why. Uh, the other officers, Officer King and Officer Tao, were charged with failure to intervene uh, to prevent Chauvin from doing what he was doing, and also the deliberate indifference to medical needs. So I had uh, uh, an expert that many of your people will know the name of that I brought into the case uh, over a year ago, uh, Steve Iams. Steve Iams did uh, Officer King as his expert, and he did testify. And I, I really liked your, your subject line in your email that I was happy to receive where you put out information to your contacts all over the country, and I think world too, um, where you said... George Floyd federal verdicts, the times they are changing still. What, what did you mean by that? Well, yeah, you know, this this is different. Getting officers convicted uh, charges like this. I mean, let's face it. Officer Chauvin was convicted of murder in the state trial last year, and he pled Officer Chauvin, who was the guy with the knee on the neck uh, for you know, the nine minutes or whatever it was. Um, he was charged with all these federal civil rights violations also, but in December, Chauvin pleaded guilty to all the federal charges. So he was not in the uh, federal case recently concluded, just the two rookie officers and the officer who's, who stood by and tried to keep the pedestrian traffic back on the sidewalk were the only ones left in the... Uh, in the federal case, but the, the, the times they are are changing, you know, um, Rodney King is a famous incident that probably some of your audience wasn't even born for. I look at the George Floyd case as the biggest game changer in law enforcement use of force since Rodney King. 
I know a little bit about Rodney King because number one, it happened at Los Angeles Police Department. Number two, I was an expert witness in that case uh, all those years ago uh, in, in part of it in the civil case. And it's just, uh, you know, there's so much myth and misinformation out there about the King case. There's already tons of myths and misinformation out there about the George Floyd case. And just the way things are, the way the media influences people, even if the media gets it wrong, the myths and misinformation about the Floyd case are going to go on forever, just like they have about the, the Rodney King case. So it's just a, it's, it's, it's a landmark case. And understand that the federal trial is over and the three officers were convicted, actually four, because Chauvin pled guilty all his federal charges. And Chauvin was convicted in the state trial yesterday or last year. But the other three officers that were just tried in federal court are also facing charges in Minnesota for aiding and abetting murder and aiding and abetting manslaughter. So the George Floyd cases are not nearly over yet. Well, this whole issue of bystander liability and intervention, which I know your guy is not, like, as you said, is not, was not held, uh, not charged with that, but this is not a new issue, you know, bystander liability and failure to intervene. It's, it's been a long, it's been around for decades, correct? Well, yeah, the big legal issues about uh, policies and training and uh, the biggest word in intervention training uh, or intervention and the duty to intervene, and most policies seem to say this, is that you would need to intervene if it is clearly apparent that ex, uh, excessive force is occurring. Clearly is the key word. Uh, the Minneapolis policy uh, 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 didn't say that. The Minneapolis policy said these words. It says, it shall be the duty of every sworn employee present in any scene where physical force is being applied to either stop or attempt to stop another sworn employee when force is being inappropriately applied or is no longer required. Now, here, here's what was real interesting to me. You know, the day after the tragic George Floyd incident happened, uh, that, that video, the bystander video, uh, went viral, okay? And I saw it. Uh, somebody told me about it, and I looked it up. I saw it. And the very first thing I did after seeing that uh, uh, video was I went online, and I went to Minneapolis Police Department's website. I looked up their use of force policy. And it was online. Right. And sure enough, it says right in the policy that you can use your leg on somebody's neck for a neck restraint hold. And I was shocked by that. So I put that out to eight other experts around the U.S. and Canada that are in my network. And I quoted the policy about neck restraint, which includes a leg. And of course, your knee is part of your leg. And I said, has anybody ever heard of this? No. And we were all like, you know, this is really a stupid policy. I mean, why would you, why would you have that? Why would you have that? 
And so I got real interested in the case uh, from there and followed it very closely from there. But but all of us agreed this this was not not a good thing to have in your policy. Now through the litigation, Minneapolis Police Trainer uh, Training Command said, "Oh yeah, well we yes we see it's in the policy, but we don't train it." And yet the evidence that came out in the recently concluded federal trial, there's all kinds of photographs and videos of knees on neck and training, you know. Come on, that's a problem. The biggest problem is the Chauvin left his his knee up there, either on the neck or right next to the neck. It's disputed whether it's shoulder, neck, where they connect, and all that. But uh, the problem is he just kind of kind of had his knee down on that area for nine minutes, and while Floyd went from being uh, resistive to pretty calm to real quiet and nothing going on there. Now, my guy, Officer Lane, twice tried to intervene by telling Chauvin, should we roll him over? I mean, the first time he said, should we roll him over? And Chauvin says, no, leave him where, it is, where he is. And this is all on tape. This is all on body-worn cameras. Right, okay? right. And, and the video and the audio and all that. And, and my guy says, I'm worried about excited delirium or whatever, you know, and Chauvin at some point, I say, hey, that's why we got the ambulance coming. Okay. My guy had previously called the ambulance because, uh, Floyd had a little blood coming out of his mouth, nose area after bashing his own face against the plexiglass divider in the back of the car when they were having the big struggle with him in the back of the car before they ever, uh, uh put him on the ground. Well, so there, there's just a, a lot goes on there. You know, inter, intervention, this, this is a big deal, and this has not been made public very much, um, but it's there in the evidence. The incident happened in May of 2020. So clear back, you go to 2017, 2018. There was a community activist advisory group to the police department. And they would hold meetings, and the chief of police would go there, and the deputy chief would go there and interact with these uh, civilians. And back in 2017 and 2018, they were urging the Minneapolis Police Department to do intervention training. Now, before that, you'll some of your some of your participants will know and recall the New Orleans Police Department started a training called EPIC E P I C. I believe it stands for Ethical Policing is Courageous. It's intervention training. It's an eight-hour course. And apparently it's proven very successful in the agencies that have done that. So this group was in, it was asking Minneapolis to look at that. So a deputy chief named Halverson from Minneapolis went down to New Orleans and went through the training. And he came back the next month at the meeting of this community group, and they record their they record their meetings, and I've seen the transcripts of their and quotes from their meetings, which is in evidence in the in the recently concluded federal trial. And the deputy chief told the community group, "Well, yeah, it was good training, and it, it might work in some places, but it will not fit our department's culture." Basically, Minneapolis refused to implement intervention training. And now you want to hold these rookies that are 
just barely this week off of their field training program, accountable for failure to intervene with a tactic they've never even seen uh, anybody do in the street, namely Chauvin with his knee up by the guy's uh, uh, neck. So there's let me, let me jump in on you there for a minute. Can you clarify just for the audience about, because there's been a lot of discussion, but I want it to be clear about the time they had on the job and the three individuals who were at the scene with Chauvin and how long did they have on the job? Uh, these guys came on the job in late 2019 or they got out of the police academy right at the end of 2019 or maybe January of 2020. Okay. And, and then they went through a four-month FTO, field training officer program, which ended the week before the George Floyd incident. So these are two rookies just finished their field training officer, uh, uh, field training program. At the time of the George Floyd incident, one of them was on their third shift after training. The other one was in their fourth shift after training. And guess what? They're still on probation. They're still on probation for like eight more months. They can be summarily fired for anything for eight more months. And what did Minneapolis do? They put them together in a police car, the two rookies. And there the was a third guy order. there, too. I'm sorry? The third guy that was on the scene? Uh, uh, he, was a, he was about a nine-year veteran, I believe, Officer Tao. Right. About a nine-year, and he was Chauvin's partner, and they had been partners for a long time. So, and Chauvin was a field training officer. In fact, he was one of Officer King's uh, field training officers. Uh, before King got off of field training. So these are, these are really, really new people. One of my big points is how do you expect a couple of rookies just barely off of training and still on probation to countermand the directions of a 19-year field training officer who, who, who was unfortunately doing the wrong thing out there what did they say about that in the trial? Well, the prosecution says, and the police chief says that, oh, everybody, it doesn't matter if you're brand new or if you're a veteran, everybody has a, has a responsibility to intervene and stop things from happening. Okay. And so, yeah, that's, that's textbook. Perfect. Sure. But in real life, you tell me what job you've ever had where you're the brand new person in your first week and you go into your boss and you think your boss is doing something wrong. And you said, Hey man, you're, you're doing that wrong. Yeah. You know, how long you think you're going to last in you're a brand new surgeon in residence and you're, you're watching an experienced surgeon do an operation. And in the middle of it, you say, Hey, don't do that. You're doing that wrong. Don't put the scalpel there. I mean, come on, give me a break. You're a brand new secretary in a law firm. Hey, uh, hey, Mr. Law Firm Partner, I don't like the way you're doing your legal cases. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is this is it's not, not realistic. That's for sure. This is not this is not how life works. So, that said, we need to find ways to adapt to what the legal culture and juries now seem to want, which is to make a more perfect world here and get everybody 
including rookies and including uh, experienced people, to know when and how to intervene. Now, I'm a big supporter of intervention. No problem there. I mean, if you see something that's clearly wrong and you're in a position to do something about it and there's time to do something about it, you ought to step in and do something about it, verbally or physically. And, And that's easy to say in a vacuum, but it gets down to how do you teach people to do that? How do you create an organizational culture that will promote that and not allow retaliation against somebody for trying to do it. Okay. That's that's where I'm stuck. That's the big challenge. That's the big, that's the big challenge. And, uh, it will play out however it plays out, but I'll tell you what's not acceptable in an agency is to not have a policy and not have training that shows you how to do that, that tells you you have to do that, shows you how to do it. And it's 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 not going to be uh, uh, perfectly easy to do, but we must find a way to do that. There's another program out there, I'll mention it, uh, that that's becoming uh, very uh, uh, prolific. Many agencies seem to be adopting it. LAPD, I think, is in the middle of adopting it or taking a hard look at it. And that's called ABLE. A-B-L-E, and that stands for Active Bystandership for Law Enforcement. And that comes out of Georgetown University, and they are going around the country at agencies that want to have ABLE, and there's a process, and they are providing that training for free. It's for free, but there's an application process. There has to be agency buy-in there has to be community buy-in you know you have to have letters of support from community organizations that say yes we want this uh before they'll come they'll come in and do it and i'll i'll see it when i see it uh uh because i try to stay up on all these these things that are going on but from what i understand uh it's it's a pretty good program and people ought to be looking at this and i'm sure there's others that are yet to be created so I was interested in the legal threshold for bystander liability and the civil side is identifying that what is occurring is wrong. That's part of the analysis. And here, in this case, they said the jury was out for 13 hours in deliberations. And do we know anything about the thought process or the issues that they were considering? Like what made them hold these rookies accountable uh, to to this situation? Yeah, I, I don't know. It gets it gets wound up above my pay grade into the legal legal issues uh, of the federal case. It, it gets uh, uh, whatever the jury instructions were. And certainly you have uh, uh, very much in play, just like any case, whether it's criminal or, or civil, you have the closing arguments from both sides, from the prosecution and the defense. And apparently for, for, for whatever reason, uh, especially in officer Lane's case, where there was so much evidence of, of all the things that he did to, uh, to help with Floyd's medical needs, they still convicted him 
of a civil rights violation of deliberate indifference to Floyd's medical needs. And deliberate indifference means means you had bad intent. You were willful in your failure. You chose not to system. I'm sorry? Doesn't it don't they have to prove the intent of that he intentionally chose not to assist him? Yeah, that's basically it. And that's what the, the jury convict convicted him of. I mean, let me tell you, keep the officer lane, because he was my guy briefly on the medical. He expressed concern for Floyd's well-being when he when he did what everybody says he's supposed to do. When Floyd was acting strange on the drugs, he was asking, "Hey, what are you on?" And he asked the witnesses, the F Floyd's friends there, "Hey, what what's he on? What's going on?" Because you want to be able to try and figure out uh, what his intoxication is, so so you can eventually tell the medical people, "Hey, I think he's on this. I think he's on that." Uh, he says he's on this, or the witness says he's on that. Uh, understand that. Floyd did not want to get into the police SUV. At, you know, he was handcuffed, walked across the street, police SUV. He wouldn't get in. There was a mighty struggle to get him in. And in the back seat, the video evidence is so clear. The whole big SUV is rocking back and forth while Floyd is resisting, and they're trying to restrain him in the back seat. I mean, it was a very... Very violent struggle. They never punched him, slapped him, kicked him, or anything. It was all soft hands-on techniques, but he was resisting like crazy. So he kept saying that he suffered from claustrophobia. He, so he didn't want to get in that confined space. Now, he'd just been sitting behind the driver's seat in his own SUV with the door closed. Right. But now he doesn't want to get into the police SUV and get that door closed. Okay, so what does Lane do? Lane, he says, I'm Floyd says, I'm claustrophobic. You know, I, I don't put me in there. I'm claustrophobic. My guy says, hey, I'll roll down the windows for you. Lane says, I'll turn on the air conditioning. I'll even sit back there with you. Because Floyd said, don't leave me alone. Hey, I'll even sit back there with you. Now, that's not deliberate indifference to medical needs. The officers took Floyd out of that back seat because Floyd said, and you can hear it loud and clear on the body-worn camera audios, Floyd said at least four times, maybe five times, put me on the ground, put me on the ground, put me on the ground. They took him out and they put him on the ground. They kept resisting and all that. Officer Lane initiated a request for a hobble restraint because he, he was kicking while he was on the ground initially and, and struggling and a hobble restraint. But then Chauvin didn't want him to put the hobble restraint on. No, no, the ambulance is coming. Lane had already called the ambulance for a reason I already said about Floyd had some blood on his mouth for bashing his uh, head on the uh, plastic divider, plexiglass uh, divider in there. Uh, Lane didn't put any weight on Floyd's torso. And guess what? I'm sorry, the, the media has had it all wrong this whole time. Nobody put any weight on his back. King did not put weight on his back. You read an article after article, oh, so King had his weight on his back. No, he didn't. You look right at the video and photographic evidence, King's knee was on the lower buttocks where the thigh joins your butt. No, not, not on his back. 
There was, there was no impact on his back. Uh, Lane twice suggested rolling over on the side. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Chauvin wouldn't let him do that the first time, and the second time Chauvin didn't say anything. Um, uh, Lane stopped using any force on his feet to hold him down after Lane after Floyd uh, calmed down. Um, Lane checked Floyd to make sure he was breathing. Lane told King to check uh, uh, the pulse because uh, uh, King could reach his wrist pulse and all that, which is not the best pulse. The best is, is probably the carotid pulse, but that, that's where Chauvin was, was way up there. And then uh, guess who Guess who gave uh, Floyd CPR after the paramedics got there and they, they put him in the back of the ambulance? Officer Lane put a, gave him CPR. Officer, after they got the Lucas machine, which is the machine now that does the automatic CPR in the back of the ambulance, they got that on, and the paramedics are still doing other things. Uh, Lane's the one that operated the breathing bag as, as part of that process. So, and yet the federal government determined that, and the jury determined, I mean, that's, that's what's amazing to me, that... Uh, Lane was deliberately indifferent to Floyd's medical needs, and that's what he was convicted of, and that's what he's going to prison for, despite all those things he did to help with the medical needs. That's a little scary. There seems to be a disconnect somewhere. There's something wrong. Yeah, yeah. I want to tell you about the the intervention training deficiency uh, at the time. I'm sure they've got all kinds of intervention training now. At that police department, but back back in the time, um, their 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 training on intervention uh, on their intervention policy was inadequate for sure. Perhaps it was non-existent. The you know the chief of police said during his interview right after the a uh, few weeks after the incident with the with the state prosecutors and investigators and the federal and the FBI and everybody. Um, you know, I've got the transcript of that. He said, we would, we would expect any officer, regardless of tenure or time on to verbally and physically, um, uh, intervene and make sure you're doing the proper duty of care for somebody. Okay. So they also interviewed, uh, the same deputy chief that had gone down to New Orleans to get the intervention training and then told the community group. No, we're not going to do that. It wouldn't fit our department's culture. Okay. They interviewed him. He said, well, the intervention training was scenario based, but he, he only knew generalities. And then they didn't even ask him what those generalities were. They changed the subject. So I looked at all the training documents for the whole police department. There's not one word in there about intervention training or scenario-based intervention training. And so now you get down to the use of force instructor, the police officer rank instructor at the academy that actually did their use of force training. And they asked him, they well, what do you do for intervention training? And he says, quote, well, it's, it's brought up in, it's in the policy it's in our policy. It's um, brought up in training, you know, as far as reading the policy and make sure that people know 
that they have a duty to intervene. And then his voice trails off and they don't pursue that in the interview. They, they change that subject. I'm sorry, reading a policy to people in the police academy is not training. Intervention training is you get in your sweats, you get down on the mats, and you teach people, you simulate an excessive force situation, and you teach other officers how verbally or physically to change the act. That would be intervention training. I mean, it's really disgusting that these rookie officers are being held accountable for total management failures about policy and training. That's my view. Well, let me get into giving some advice to the men and women that are out there now based on your experience. It is interesting in reading one of the articles from the Star Tribune that was talking about the obligation to protect. Uh, they said concerns as the verdicts will have a chilling effect on police retention and recruitment are less important than the clear message sent by the jury. If an officer is engaged in excessive force, the law compels others on the scene to intervene. So my question, if you're giving advice to a younger officer, somebody who is just started in their career, um, what, advice, what advice would you give them based on the, what you've analyzed in this case? I think for sure when in your agency, in your training, whether it's academy training or later in-service training, Whatever it is, when this subject comes up about duty to intervene or intercede, some places call it, when that subject comes up, and, and Eric, you know that subject's coming up in agencies all over the country now as a result right. of this tragic case, right? And right. these convictions of these officers, you know that subject is coming up. You want to make sure, number one, you clearly understand your agency's policy, and you ask questions. You ask questions of whoever the instructor is, whether it's an academy instructor or your sergeant or a lieutenant at roll call, whoever's talking about this, you ask questions to make sure you understand all the what-if scenarios. Hey, what if my what if my partner is doing something that I know he or she should not do? Should I just talk to them? Should I yell at them? Should I touch them? Should I move? What exactly is it expected that I do? And make sure as best you can that you have a clear understanding of what you're supposed to do. Here's one of the glitches in this whole intervention thing. Again, I support intervention when it is clear that excessive force is occurring and you have time and opportunity to do something about it, that you should do something about it. But what if you come up on a scene, there's already a use of force going on, one or more officers using force, and now you get there, whether you're a rookie or a 20-year street officer, okay, and you get there, and you see something you don't like, and you decide that you're going to go in there and, and change it. Guess what? What don't you know? What happened before you even got there that might cause this officer to be doing what they're doing now that looks like excessive force to you, but they've already tried lower level stuff and nothing was working and the suspect's still actively resisting or combative. And so they've had to escalate to 
punches or kicks or whatever it is, uh, and, and you weren't even there to see what happened first. So these are the kind of issues that are going to get tossed around out there uh, in the, the real life experience beyond the policy and the training. Let me tell you what uh, a uh, retired police executive, a trainer, and an expert witness who wrote back to me about this subject when I sent out kind of a questionnaire last week, and, and you received that. You know, like what what should what should the future look like? And here's what he said. He said, yes, times are actually now changed. That's that's because I had my headline, the times they are a change, like you said. <laughs> right. Right. He said, yes, times are actually now changed. He says, we have an obligation as current police trainers to prepare the new officers for a different world. I disagree with the verdicts of all three of the officers. And in the past, a case could have even been made for Joven's actions as well. We must instill the concept and obligations expected of all officers involved in any type of use of force scenario. And okay, and I agree with that conceptually. The challenge around the country now and in the law enforcement profession is try to figure out what does that look like? Yeah, I, I agree. And so let's move up the food chain because you have the officers who are making these difficult decisions and intervening, which they should. We all agree with that. And, and I agree with your clearly identified excessive force and time and opportunity. How about supervisors? Uh, what is your advice out there to sergeants who are out and about in the field uh, with the full intent to make sure their officers, I hate to use the word protect the officers because someone's going to throw that back at me somewhere, but that they really want to make sure that their officers are doing the right thing. Based on what you looked at in this case, what, what advice would you give to the supervisors? Well, the supervisors uh, are really the key because we, we we know from all these decades of experience that field supervisors are the ones where policy and training uh really hit hit the road it's where it's what supervisors tolerate is what the officers will do and what supervisors put up their hand and say don't do that the officers will listen to them and of course if they if they violate that, then ideally the supervisor will hold them accountable. So my advice to supervisors it is really the same as to newer officers in terms of this intervention subject. You've got to be clear on what is your agency policy. And hopefully there's some effective agency training and Hopefully, you will have confidence as a supervisor that your lieutenant and your captain and all the way up to your chief will back you up when you are making decisions out there uh, in the intervention realm and, you know, uh, coaching your officers before there's ever an incident, doing the what-if scenarios that are so important in training 
you know, what if this happens? What am I going to do? What if this happens? What are you going to do? And get some get some buy-in among partners and squads and platoons, uh, watches in some places where they call them, what they call them. And, and, and you basically create help create the organizational culture that will allow that to happen. Now, again, I say all that because conceptually it sounds real good, but where the rubber meets the road on intervention, time will tell. Some agencies are probably doing it better than others. Some agencies are going to be slow to catch up. Some officers are going to end up being sacrificial lambs because they didn't get it right. Some supervisors are going to end up being sacrificial lambs because they didn't get it right or they didn't cause an intervention that needed to be caused. And, 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 and so it goes. The other thing that I think is a reality and departments that I've seen in my work all over the country, as well as my own expert, I'm sorry, my own experience uh, at the LA, LAPD is in every division, and every every watch, every shift, platoon, whatever your agency calls it, everybody knows who's the heavy-handed guy and who's not. Okay, so maybe if you got somebody that's around you when you go on a call and and that, that's that's known as the heavy-handed guy, he may not be heavy-handed every time, but he's got the history. Chauvin had 19 complaints, right? During his tenure, they still let him be a field training officer. That's another problem subject, okay? But everybody kind of knows, oh, I'm not sure if I want that guy to come on my call because it's going to turn to caca, okay? So when you have that realization that there is somebody like that, hopefully there's not, but if there is somebody like that uh, on your force, on your squad, whatever, that supervision before the next incident ever happens, takes that guy aside, him or her, and gets their attention about, hey, you know, the way we used to do things is not the way we're going to do things now. You, you, you have an obligation not to be part of the problem. Because if you want to continue to be part of the problem, my solution is I'm going to try and force you out of this police department. Have those, you're going to have to have those hard conversations. And it's tough. It's, it's a tough thing. But we've got officers going to prison because of this now. And nobody wants to be the next CNN poster child. That's for sure. Take some proactive steps. Take some preventative steps. What do they say all our life? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's what we're talking about here. I Let me ask you exactly what it looks like, but there's probably some clues in there of in what I've said. So you you really went through Minneapolis's training records and policies, and you know there's going to be a lot of police executives around the country scrambling now to one clarify policy. We know there's 16 states in the country that have reform legislation specifically implementing intervention, which I don't know why they need that. It's been the law for decades. But uh, you got police executives now who are going to be scrambling to clarify policies and put some training into effect so that guys like you 
aren't going to come around and, and find that they messed up later. Um, and so those proactive police chiefs that are listening, what are the things that you were looking for in Minneapolis that you didn't see that you would recommend police executives uh, put into their daily operations starting now? Yeah, I, I suspect that since May 20th of 2020 or 25th, I guess it was of 2020 when the George Floyd tragic incident happened, that if I were to go back and look at Minneapolis Police Department policy now and Minneapolis training now, I would expect that I'd see a whole different uh, a whole different ball game on this use of force uh, issue and this intervention issue. I believe they've made a lot of changes. So what you need to do is probably a top to bottom review of your use of force uh, policies and make sure they conform to modern times. Take a look at your intervention policy. If you don't have one, you better steal one from some other agency that's got a good one. If look at your intervention training. And I'm sorry, but for something that's as important as this and that potentially has a physical component to it, if your verbalization to somebody that's uh, using excessive force isn't working, there's going to need to be a physical component to it. So you cannot just, Chief, you cannot just put out a bulletin or a policy document that says, hey, do this. You cannot just have training where some instructor stands in front of a classroom where everybody's looking sharp in their uniforms and sitting at their desks and you chalk talk it or have a PowerPoint and say, intervention, there's what you have to do. You got to do all that, but I'm telling you, you better get down on the mats in the gymnasium. You better get down there and do some real scenario-based stuff where there's identifiable excessive force going on, simulated, and you teach people how to intervene. You have them come in, they see the excessive force, they, 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 they understand that it's clearly excessive force, and now what are their options in this scenario to go forward say something, touch the guy on the shoulder, some, some intervention training, there's a code word. You have a local agency code word for trying to get the attention of the officer that's using excessive force. And that tells them basically, hey, stop doing that, do something else. And finally, you know, it's just hard to picture, but uh, physically making it stop whatever that looks like. I have one of my respondents to my my question in the wake of the recent federal jury's uh, uh, verdicts against the officers. He, he was a federal deputy public defender. He happens to be a personal friend, a golf buddy of mine. <laughs> and, and, I, uh, and I asked him, and he says, I can't see how the rookie was swept into this. He says, was he supposed to taser Chauvin? <laughs> now, that's a funny line. We can all laugh. We can all laugh at that. Scary funny. Though. It leaves the question open. If push comes to shove, what 
would you physically need to do, be able to do, and still survive with your career of stopping excessive force? These are hard challenges that have to be brainstormed in every agency, figure out how to do it and how to train it. But train it on the mats, not just the classroom. That's great advice. That's great advice. Well, I think I've uh, used up your time allotment and I and I truly appreciate it. And I'd love to have you back in the future because your your knowledge is amazing. So I'm going to hit you with one last question. You've been tramping around this planet with a lot of experience and doing expert witness work. What does the future of law enforcement look like to you? We have an open question right now. I think, you know, I've been around since 1976 uh, when I started my police career at age 27. Um, Just like you see crime go up and down as various things happen in society and the legal system, you have support for the police goes up and down. And we're at a point right now where even though, as always, the vast majority of the public, I believe, supports the police, there's a significant portion of the public, and they seem to get most of the media coverage, which affects people's mindsets. A significant part of the public does not support law enforcement. You even have some answers to my question that I sent out last week. You have prominent police trainers. You have prominent retired police executives. You have prominent police defense attorneys, not Eric Daigle. I won't (laughs) name him, but some of them are saying, you know what? We are at a point right now where you probably need to think twice before getting into a situation that you don't need to get into. And that means right now, and I think it's happening in many places. uh, uh, I think it's probably happening very widely in many places. I think you have a reduction of proactive police work going on out there. You have officers that are just answering their calls and not necessarily being in a big hurry to get there. And instead of getting themselves into situations by initiating stops of traffic or pedestrians, uh, initiating situations where they're going to have suspect contact with the unknown. And I think that's unfortunate because I think that's part of the driver of crime going up in many places. When the police slow down, the criminals speed up. (laughs) I feel I can't prove it uh, with empirical evidence right now. I'm sure academic, academic researchers with bigger brains than mine in years to come will reflect back on this and do their studies and, and be able to prove it that Yes, the police slowed down. Yes, that had to do with crime going up. But a lot of police are going into survival mode. And I don't mean the traditional survival we teach them about tactics. They're going into administrative and legal survival mode survival mode um, by trying to avoid the confrontation in the first place. 
I think it's too bad, but I also think it's the reality for a lot of our people until the political leadership and the uh, organization, the police organization and sheriff organization leadership leads us out of the doldrums that we're in in many places and causes uh, the evolution to occur where there's uh, greater support for officers, a greater understanding of tactics of why we do what we do, and let's do it as well as we can. Let's do it better than ever. My punchline for many years, uh, probably come up on 40 years in a lot of articles I've written, a lot of lectures I've given, a lot of media interviews that I've done, is this. If we can put a man on the moon and bring him back safely to Earth, why can't we put a man on the ground and take him safely to jail? That's the challenge. Now, that was, I always said that in the context of non-lethal weapons, uh, making a difference in, uh, uh, in our ability to take someone down with fewer and less severe injuries to overcome their resistance and fewer and less severe injuries to the officers, by the way. But I think it might more widely apply to the situation we're in. We have to find a way to, through de-escalation tactics, which include the non-lethal weapons and other resources, find a way to have less injuries from use of force incidents, less shootings to the extent we can manage that. Um, and by the way, it's been around a long time. For, for you young people that keep hearing there's so many police shootings out there, it is like a quarter to a third of what it was a generation ago. The, the number of shootings is just way, way down. But with 24-7 cable news, you hear so much more about them. We know that. Well, Greg, it was great catching up with you, and I thank you for your time. Uh, I thank you uh, for your guidance to all of our listeners, and, and I wish you uh, health and, and wellness as we move forward. Thanks, Eric. My best to you, and it's an honor to have been asked to be on your program. All right, thank you. And as I finish, everyone, I will say help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you. Thank you.